between the wisdom passed down by ancient healing traditions, anecdotal experience, and modern clinical trials, one thing is clear. Mushrooms are medicinal powerhouses. And I finally found a brand, a product, a company that I feel really aligns with all of my research and understanding when it comes to the medicinal properties of mushrooms, and that is Alchemy Mushrooms. They grow their mushrooms in California on organic mushroom farms. They keep the whole mushroom in their supplements, and they actually blend mycelium and fruit body in their mushroom powders and capsules to give you the best of both worlds. You can learn more at Alchemy Mushrooms. That's A-L-C-H-E-M-I, alchemymushrooms.com. Use the discount code MUSHROOMHOUR for 20% off your order. Alchemy with an I, mushrooms.com. Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on the Mushroom Hour podcast, we're joined by Maria Finn, founder of Flora and Fungi Wild Foods. Maria is an author, a journalist, chef, and multi-sensory storyteller. She spent many years pursuing her different obsessions like tango dancing and surfing or working on fishing boats in Alaska. Prior to the COVID-19 lockdown, she was chef in residence for Stochastic Labs, a residency for artists, scientists, and tech innovators in Berkeley, California. During the pandemic, she launched Flora and Fungi Wild Food Adventures, where she teaches people how to hunt for porcinis, chanterelles, seaweed, and other wild foods. She has been published widely, including essays, articles, and books, some of which have been optioned for television, inducing visions of grandeur that have not quite yet come to fruition. She was an ocean-faring cat lady living on a houseboat in Sausalito with her two tabby cats and her native oyster garden. However, during the COVID lockdown, she adopted a truffle puppy and has since spent many hours in the woods training her puppy to find these buried gems along with other edible fungi. She has spent subsequent hours searching her dog and herself for ticks. She's working on a book about truffles around the world, their role in forest ecosystems, and our co-evolution with them. I'm excited to talk about it all, from truffles to wild mushrooms to bounty from the sea. Maria, thank you so much for joining us on the Mushroom Hour. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm Mushrooms are one of my favorite things in the world to talk about, so it's really exciting to be here. In reviewing your body of work, mushrooms are one part of this huge range of interests that you have that we hinted at in the intro. So to kind of tell us a little bit of that story, where you're coming from, you know, maybe highlight some of the sequence of events in your life that led you to have the deep relationship you have with nature and that led you eventually on this path of foraging and communing with fungi. Well, I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, and it wasn't, my grandparents had a garden. I think we found morels in their, on their property, but, and, and, you know, when you're a kid, you like, we, uh, the asparagus would kind of get feral and it was really fun to find that, but it was really kind of a normal childhood with, I was from the food era, the kind of bad food era of casseroles and jello salads. Um, but I finished college in Missouri and I had a degree in English and I wanted to be a writer and I didn't have any money. I was working as a waitress. So I'd always worked in restaurants throughout college. That's where I kind of learned about food. It was, you know, and I, I learned, you know, about grilled salmon and oysters on the half shell and all these things I would not have normally in like a big Irish Catholic family in the Midwest. 
But I wanted to travel around the world and be a writer, but I didn't have any money. And as a waitress, I, I never saved it. You know, it was just cash in your pocket. And, and so I decided to go to Alaska, uh, work in the fishing industry. I thought canneries. And then I'd save all my money and I'd be able to travel. I got up there and there were no jobs in the canneries. The fish boats weren't fishing yet. I had, you know, I hadn't really researched it, but I ended up, because I could cook, I learned to cook in restaurants too. I'd, I'd fill in in the kitchen. Um, one restaurant I worked in, the servers had to work in the kitchen couple times a month, just so we understood the pace and, and we were sympathetic to it. And I always preferred the kitchen than the floor. You just didn't make as much money. So I got jobs cooking on fishing boats. And I ended up on an all-female commercial salmon boat in Alaska. And from there, I did that for a few years. And then I started working for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game way out west in western Alaska. And I spent a couple of years on the Yukon Delta with the Yupik people. And they are, they're amazing. And they have fish drying camps up and down the river. And to know how many fish we had, we often, we had to catch them in nets because it was very muddy there. And we would go up and down the river and give them our fish. You know, we'd be like, here, you know, this guy died in the net. Can you take them? And so they probably, they're, they're very impoverished. Their, their income is well below poverty level. So they live subsistence. They, they live off the land. They're, they're about 70% wild foods because you go to the grocery store and, you know, a gallon of milk is $7 there. And right. these people who have average incomes of about $11,000 a year. So they fish, they hunt. You know, I learned very quickly. I was in the harbor at Imanic, a village, and I'm like, oh, look, a seal. And next thing I know, everybody's running after it with spears. <laughs> I was like, that's not what I meant. <laughs> you know, but it was, it was a very different perspective. Um and they would have potlatches in the village and they invited us, which was very kind of them. And and it was all different kinds of wild foods, you know, and sometimes I'd be like, let's not see lions. <laughs> but, but it would be every part of the salmon, you know, they ate the eggs, the the milt, the collars, the necks. Like it, it isn't like how, you know, we are used to people eating fish here. Right. It was really to them, you know, the word salmon was synonymous with food. And their relationship with the river was incredibly profound. And they, they showed me, you know, here's, here's wild watercress. And the only flavor of yogurt they had in the grocery store was blueberry, because that's the only fruit they recognized, because they ate wild blueberries. There's berries in Alaska. So they, there's salmon berries and blueberries and watermelon berries. So then back in Homer, where I lived, this little uh, marvelous little town south of Anchorage, we would, again, we had very expensive food costs and then glorious wild foods. So, you know, we would go out for mushrooms in the fall. In the spring, there'd be fiddlehead ferns. We would pull crab pots and have Dungeness crab. And, uh, you know, I grew like a couple, you know, 10 gallons of lettuce growing, you know, by the front door. And so, uh, so we just had salmon and rice and salad. And it was, you know, and, and so the wild foods in Alaska were, and it wasn't just for to save money or because the food was much better. It was fun. It was what we did for fun. You know, we'd have a group of us would go out blueberry picking or raspberry picking, and then we make pies out of it. And, you know, so I have really always loved that. And even when I moved to New York City for graduate school, uh, there was still urban foraging. I met chefs that would, uh, you know, really do amazing things like ginkgo nuts coming out of the trees, or people would lead tours of Central Park of weeds and I lived in an area in Brooklyn with a lot of Italians and they had planted um, fig trees, you know, and so you're walking along and uh, you'd have fig trees outside of these churches. So I, I love it in urban centers. I love it in rural areas. And so when I moved to Sausalito, to me, it was perfect. It was like 
What I loved about New York City was in San Francisco. What I loved about Alaska was in West Marin. And there is none of the suffering of Alaska in New York City. <laughs> it was a very like gentle landing after the, those two places were hard in different ways. I love them. They're magical places. But And then here I was writing. So I I started my own newsletter kind of about called City Dirt. I, I, have, I don't do it anymore. But I would interview people in different urban gardening or foraging or, you know, things like that. And someone said, well, you should talk to Kevin Sadlier over at Green Jeans Nursery. He is a very passionate mycologist. And so I went over there and he said, well, I'm going to go look for porcinis. Can you be here at 3 a.m. on Thursday or something like that? And I said, yes. And I showed up and he goes, you're the first person to show up. <laughs> he said, everybody says they want orange mushrooms, but nobody wants to get up at 3 a.m. to do it. Um, and so, so that's part of it. And, and this is, you know, as my relationship kind of deepens here, I, what I'm learning, and same thing with the seaweed harvesting, I learned from a wonderful woman, Heidi, who has strong arm farms up in Sonoma. And same thing. She's like, meet me on the Sonoma coast at 6 a.m. So you're getting up at 3 and this is the thing with nature is nature is not on your terms. Nature is on nature's terms. Right. And that's a beautiful thing about foraging, you know, because sometimes people will say, oh, you know, I want to go seaweed foraging with you. Let's go at noon on Saturday. And I'm like, OK, <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> you know? I have to go. We have to go on the lowest tides when it's seaweed season. Um, you know, so mushrooms, a lot of and I have friends who are foragers here. You know, we're always looking. We're like, OK, we got our first big rain. We want a cold snap. We wait two days of sun and then we go. So you're super connected with nature when you're doing this. You know, you're really, it's even before you go out there, nature is telling you, nature is showing you what to do. And that's so different than how so much of our life is, right? Like we expect nature to correspond to us. And I feel like those systems we've created that we are trying to force onto nature, like capitalism and our transportation systems and our food systems, we're, we're hurting it and we're hurting ourselves because of that. So when I take people out foraging, what I want is to, I want to transform them into people that go, oh, wait, how is nature doing this? How can I take this back to my life and do it like nature? It's a form of biomimicry, you know, like how can we all use biomimicry more in our lives? Well, and I think subconsciously, that's why a lot of people resonate so much with the idea of going to search for wild foods is that desire for reconnection with the natural world, with nature's timescales, with understanding natural processes. It inevitably puts you more in touch with that world. And that feels good and that feels satisfying. And that's something that you just elucidated so well that our modernity, you know, modern society disconnects you from and we can't consciously tell, but I know that that causes a lot of anxiety on a level for humans that have co-evolved in this natural system. So there's all this research coming out, right? About just how just being in nature, just being around trees, like lowers your blood pressure, makes you happy, you know, just just a, a walk out there. And so, you know, mushrooms, I think there's really, you get that hit, right? That adrenaline hit that when you like finding a porcini, a big, beautiful porcini, like there's, I, during lockdown, I got, I, a friend hired me actually to tutor her daughter in mushroom hunting because her daughter was super into it. And not just, you know, the edibles, but just loved them, you know, like kids love the Amanita muscaria, right? <laughs> but Emma found three large porcini clustered together, you know, and you hear this sort of little voice and she's 11 and there's like, I think I have something over here, you know, I went and there are these big, beautiful tawny and 
she was so thrilled. Like she described it as, I feel like there were balloons released inside of me. A beautiful description. We've all felt that. Yeah. Right. And this went on for a long time. And then she got to take it home and feed everybody her porcinis. And that's magical. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's something that foraging does is I think of it as kind of a reprogramming. You know, we're kind of programmed now to be in this man-made society. And I think foraging is useful in that it does give that adrenaline hit, that that carrot on the stick to draw you out and start the reprogramming process. I think it's, for a lot of people, including myself, it's it's definitely done that. And it sounds like for you, that's very much what you discovered that caused you to just infuse wild foods in your life. I mean, having a starting place, your first foraging influence to be a people's that literally relied on it for subsistence. I mean, that's a really unique way to come into foraging to me. That's that's a different viewpoint than those of us who, yeah, we want to deprogram from modernity. We want to do it purely because it's fun, but it seems like it's a different perspective to have when you're doing it for a much more serious reason, it sounds like. Well, it was also, you know, seamless. For them, it's a seamless thing. Right. It, there's no, it's just food. It's just how you eat. It's just what you do this time of year. You know, it's like the fish are running. You put your nets in the water. Like it's kind of your your circadian clock on this, you know, kind of year-long way. Right. You know, and the people up there, they had summer and they had winter. You know, when we try to give them like, oh, it's 6 p.m. Your kids should be in bed by 8 p.m. It's pure daylight. The kids aren't going to bed at 8 p.m. And then there are the idea of what winter is, you know, for them, it's darkness. So, so they lived in these very different cycles as well. It was a very different mindset. And yeah, and I, I was so lucky because, and part of it too, and this is a great thing about being a writer and just being curious and asking questions is when you do that and you do it with respect, people invite you in. My neighbors who were or the women, you know, they were great and they would show me and I'd say, I would show me how to, you know, show me how you smoke these because they would have the racks going with all the fish and they would start showing me at one time they, they made these snacks for their kids. They were salmon smelt, which is not smell, but sperm, basically popsicles. So they would put a stick on them and dip them in seal oil and freeze them. And all the kids are walking around eating these salmon sperm popsicles. And I was just like, that is next level. <laughs> that is a phrase I never thought I'd hear in my life. I know, dipped in seal oil, and I, they were. I had one guy, Benny. He was a uh, he was an elder, and you know, and I knocked on his door, and I said, "Hey, I've got some fish for you, Benny." You know, and he goes, "Come in, come in," and I go in, and he has a mound of whale blubber, and he's eating a Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> I just was like, yeah, it was very unexpected, and I was always kind of shocked and delighted at the same time. You know, what yeah. is. <laughs> what was going on. And, and so, yeah, here it, it's a luxury. I mean, when I, if I go out and I spend hours pounding around in the woods and I come home with a bunch of porcini, yeah, that's great. But you know, had I sat down and worked for those hours, I would have made enough money to buy a lot more. So as much as I'm still doing it on our economic terms as a luxury, but you know, for me, it's really, it's really a, a soul thing. It's seaweed season right now. And, and there's really, nothing more glorious than being at our coastline at sunrise. There's just an experiencing tide pools and really like, and getting to know what's around us in, in these sort of times of quiet and golden glow. And then coming home with the seaweed and urchin too, I, I picked those or I, but we're having a massive problem with urchin on our coast right now, but um, you know, I'll dry them and then I'll, I'll make things out of them in the last a year if they're dried. 
so it's just a bit of that. It brings me back to that moment. You know, that taste brings me back to it. And then when I share my bounty with people and friends and I show up and I, you know, feed people these things, it's sharing that moment with all of them. Oftentimes, you know, if like last year was a great morale year and probably this year will be a great morale year. <laughs> See, Unfortunately, yeah. I know, I know, it's so terrible to say. But, you know, I came back with just bushels of them and then you're just feeding people morels all the time, you know, and it's really, it, and I feel like that's an important thing because the world's being generous with me. You know, and we can we can transition into truffles. But I came back from Oregon, Washington, with my my dog with a box of truffles, and so talk about feeling wealthy. <laughs> and it's true; it gets to the heart of these things that are so valuable to us on a level that isn't encompassed within our economic value system. And I think so many of us are starving for that. And I, I think there are probably other outlets, but foraging, communing with nature, and experiencing that reciprocal relationship of seeing receiving nature's bounty. And you kind of invest time and pay attention to it. You get back this bounty. There's something so fulfilling about that. And that was one question I had is when you worked with the Yupik people in Alaska, obviously these are indigenous peoples with a vibrant living tradition when it comes to wild food. Do you think that that was really the time where you fell in love with wild food and all the things that go along with that pursuit and with that lifestyle? You know, did it inculcate a special sense of reciprocity? was really working with the UPIC, the seminal moment when you fell in love with wild food and decided to really pursue this as passionately as you do? Somewhat. Uh, Alaska, so before that, working on the Pacific Ocean, you know, this is, I had never been on a boat on the ocean before. And it was really, really hard work. But it was also, it was such beauty. I mean, it was such incredible beauty. And it was just, every once in a while, I'd look up, and, and Alaska is like another place in time. And there'd be miles of killer whales swimming by just miles of them you know and babies jumping in the air and flapping down and you're just i mean there's states of grace just constantly you know the bioluminescence under the boat and and salmon i've come to respect more than any creature on earth like they are magical creatures and they feed the entire ecosystem so they make these journeys up these rivers and you see them and they've got claws from an eagle or a bear that was trying to get them, or a bite from a seal that was trying to get them. And they're still swimming upriver to the exact place they were born to die so they can decompose for their young. And they feed 500 to 1,000 other animals besides ourselves, right? And these animals take parts of them and scatter them in the woods, right? The eagles and osprey and bears. So they're fertilizing the trees. Right. So there's DNA in our redwoods from the salmon. There's DNA in these huge trees from the salmon. And so that is when I, it was really my Alaska experience of falling in love with the Pacific Ocean that has informed really my whole life. And yeah. so, you know, my writing, my work as a chef, my now starting these wild food camps, it's really for me all about telling these stories and these stories of, you know, no matter what goes on in your life, no matter what seems hard, there is this awe and redemption to be found in nature. And sometimes when you're out in the wilderness for really long periods of time, I was out in this river, Togiak, and pretty isolated, extremely isolated. And we'd get radio programs from Russia. <laughs> it was really cloudy. We'd get some radio programs coming over. But it was almost transcendental. You know, you'd have these moments where the Arctic turn would be kind of fishing the salmon, small, the mergansers who watch each other's birds. And you would just feel parts of yourself just kind of refracted back. And you're like, oh, this is madness. 
but it really was really this transcendental and fortunately California to me it's just so beautiful just so relentlessly beautiful all the time so when shutdown happened and I lost all my work as a chef and I was working doing outreach for Ocean Conservancy as well and my writing I had two feature articles I was supposed to be writing everything fell apart. So I started, um, as we moved further into it, so many people have asked me to take the mushroom hunting. And then, you know, they kind of go home and mess up the mushrooms, right? Like, you know, you cook your porcini with the spongy part, you know, and you don't clean that out. And then it kind of has a not pleasant consistency, or you don't dry cook your chanterelles first, and they're super watery, and they're slimy, you know, so I'm like, these are the most, these are delicious mushrooms, just don't mess them up. So I, what I started doing is these wild food camps where I would have people meet me at Salt Point and I'd take them out. First one was porcini. We'd hunt for porcini and I'd tell them which trees to look under, the season, the shrimps. And then uh, we would have a campfire kind of cooking class, really. And we would cook the porcini over the campfire in different ways. And I'd make different things with it, like a crostini toast and then porcini risotto. And I made candy cap sugar cookies in advance, you know. So, and and because we were isolated, I mean, it was a low bar, right? Cause, but I had... <laughs> Like of what fun was during pandemic. But it was very small groups. And you know, and I had one man, he's like, This is the best day I've had in 90 days, you know? Because you're outside, salt points incredibly beautiful, and campfire, rustic food, and you know, and then everybody had sort of booklets on how to go do this. That's what I wanted. It was like, because you don't know if you're gonna find something, right? Right. But if you don't, now you can come back and you know where to look and you know what to look for. So we did that with Chantrelle Camp as well. And we're doing it with seaweed on Mirror Beach, where we're going to cook seaweed afterwards on like over a campfire. There's something to me that's super special about that. That was something I definitely wanted to tease out that I noticed in your work that I've had so many people tell me there's nothing more magical than going, getting your food from the woods or your food from the sea and then cooking it over an open fire. There's just something magical about that experience, especially in that kind of collective effervescence of other people who just did the same thing. It's in our DNA. It really is. I mean, that that is our deepest DNA is working together as hunter gatherers, sharing food around a campfire. And food just tastes better over live fire. Yeah. It has that added element to it as well. And if you're sitting in the woods or you're sitting next to a coast, then there's it's also insanely beautiful. So you're really you're really firing on everything. <laughs> you're firing on the senses. I mean your feet might be wet. <laughs> there might be stuff like that. But that's all part of that unglamorous part of foraging that, yeah, you're going to get muddy and wet. Yes, you're going to wake up early, but you're still going to have an amazing time and connect with some of that ancestral DNA. And that's what's important to me. It's important that people get dirty and wet. You know, like that's an important and tired. I want, I want everybody dirty, wet and tired afterwards because I think that's part of it. So we're doing a four day camp in Alaska. Uh, four day, three nights in Hesketh Island, Alaska. So I'm so excited to go back to my, you know, original stomping grounds. Yeah, so we have people are going out on a boat fishing salmon and halibut. They're going to learn how to break it down, how to smoke it, you know, how to make the ikara out of the eggs. We're kayaking for seaweed and kelp and uni and mussels, and they're going to make that on the beach. Foraging for berries in the woods. Sort of, sort of my youth. It's my <laughs> sort of bringing all my youth back. Well, and I love that you kind of take that next step because. For a lot of people who are foragers, we all know that, you know, the foraging is the first half going out and actually finding, but then it's the preservation, it's the cooking. And that's actually where I've seen a lot of people who just start getting into foraging. They get faced with that. They don't know what to do. 
And it's kind of like this stumbling block where they're not as juiced to go out and do it. Or, or they gather all these great things and then it just ends up going to waste because they don't know what to do with it. It sits there, especially seaweed. You seaweed is like you can get a lot of it really fast and then you dry it and then you're like, oh God, what am I going to use all this seaweed for? So go, okay, here's pragmatic ways of using it. You know, here's ways that can just, some of it is like bladder rack, I'll pickle, put it in salads, kombu, you know, you can make really nice broths. I'll do a lot of, you know, with my subprime mushrooms, I'll dry them out and then I'll make seaweed mushroom broths and, you know, Mm -hmm. there's and healthier and then you can use that as a base for anything risottos or soups or you can poach your your vegetables in it or fish in it so yeah there's there's kind of ways that you do need to and that's the thing is sometimes you find these things and you're cleaning them like herring are pretty easy to catch and they're really a pain to clean so i i'm very mindful of like not taking more than i'm willing to clean and pickle that's something that's really important. I think it is easy to go out and just want to collect every last thing you see, but you kind of stop and think, okay, what am I going to be able to process given my time and my kitchen space? And if you're not going to be able to use it, it is okay to leave it there. Someone else can find it. Insects can eat it. That's who benefit the most from all these wild foods. That's something I'm, you know, with truffles. So I'm just starting on the truffle journey and I'm totally addicted. So it's, so it's it's something where I want all the truffles, you know, I want to go in the woods and I want all the truffles. But I also know that these are the, the primary food source for a lot of rodents, flying um, squirrels, chipmunks, and they need to spread their spores through the woods. Yeah. You know, and I'm not going to find all the truffles, but I'm really you know, going to have to learn to be like, this is enough truffles. And that's going to be really hard. <laughs> <laughs> that that moderation might only come with time. Right. <laughs> but let's talk about that journey a little bit because we're hearing about you falling in love with the Pacific Ocean. We're hearing about you working with this living tradition with the Yupik in Alaska. And you can follow the thread of your passion for wild foods through these experiences. You know, and how did that continue to evolve going into the pandemic? Because it sounded like the start of your business and educating others and really pursuing this path of the truffle hunt really started for you during the pandemic. So tell us a little bit about that evolution. Well, even right when the pandemic started, I was at my friend Luke's house in Sebastopol and he has this wonderfully overgrown yard. And, you know, he'd like stocked up on dry foods, right? And, and, I was looking in his backyard and I'm like, you know, in a pinch, if things get really bad during this pandemic, you can eat pretty much your whole yard. <laughs> <laughs> I think we got fennel, nettles, miner's lettuce, wild radish back there. It's just like, it was basically a salad bar. And so I thought, you know, this would be a good thing for people to know. Yeah. You know, if you don't want to go to the grocery store and there's miner's lettuce growing. But so you know, my truffle journey really started, um, I was at Salt Point years ago, and I had a bag of porcini. And I'm super excited, right? I'm in my happy place with my bag of porcini. And I walked through the campground and this mycologist David Campbell is there about to teach a class. And I'm like, look what I got, I got a bag of porcini. And he goes, wait here. And he goes to his van and he comes back with a jar. And he hands it to me and screws it and hands it to me. And he says, smell this. And I stuck my nose in it. And it was a Paragord truffle he had brought back from Italy. And like my life changed. It was one of those. And I think a lot of people have these truffle moments where your whole life changes. And I'd never smelled anything like it. 
uh, you know, and it, it literally reached inside me and made me want it more than anything in the world. And I, you know, David eventually was like, I have my truffle back. <laughs> I was just sort of <laughs> smelling this truffle. And I gave it back to him and there's this like overwhelming sense of kind of melancholy, you know? And I just thought, oh my God, I'm here with my porcini and my plates and I'm sad because that scent left. So years later, I got a press release and I was invited to American Truffle Company meeting, a town hall meeting in Napa, like a Napa Agricultural Institute. And I was like, yes, I want to go. And they were talking about installing truffle orchards in Napa right. and sort of biodiversify the vineyards. And I was totally sold. I was like, I'm on board, you know, I want to, but I live on a houseboat, so I could not have a truffle orchard. And <laughs> so they, they invited me and I wrote about, I read a couple of articles and I went to the truffle festival and I got to eat truffles for the first time ever. And and I got to eat them like for breakfast and dinner. No, not breakfast. Lunch and dinner every day by these amazing chefs. And it was just an embarrassment of riches. And right. uh, yeah, it was ridiculous. And and this is a great thing about being a journalist where <laughs> I get to do things like that. So I followed them for a while. And, and I was like, and I met my first truffle dog, Lagoda Romanolo Rico at the Truffle Festival. He was doing a demonstration on how they find truffles. And he was probably a 40-pound, medium-sized dog, super cute, water dog. Rico also worked as his, I think his owner is a therapist with vets who have PTSD. So he was also mm. a therapy dog. So he's super well-behaved, you know, talented. And I was like, this is a dog for me. I want to go to Romanolo. I want a dog with my troubles. They have a great disposition. Oh, and- yeah. And they're cute. Yeah, they're super cute. And our family dog growing up was a cockapoo, and they kind of look like those and the same size and everything. So... And our dog growing up was really smart and sweet. But I, I was like, I can't have a dog. You know, I'm a cat person and I this and that. And I work my hours and, you know, I travel too much. And then I was in Italy and I was writing an article about sustainability in Tuscany uh, vineyards and moving away from pesticides, wineries that are moving away from pesticides. That's actually just came out in Gastronomica this month, that, that essay that I wrote about that, of Love, Math, and Brunello de Montalcino. But I went on a truffle hunt, just like an Airbnb experience outside of Florence. I just signed up and went on it. And it was also just fabulous. We just walked in the woods with this old elder Tuscan truffle hunter. His dog, Dee Dee, was a little uh, orange and cream colored Legoto. And she would run in a circle, dig a hole. I ran over and drop a truffle in his hand. And I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is the dog I want. Um, and and you know, we had a truffle lunch afterwards, you know, the, the wife prepared and it was just really great. And so lockdown happened and and I have a friend of mine who is a doctor and he works in virology and he's a very generous man. And he just, he said, you know, I'm really worried about you because you lost all your jobs. And he said, and I know that you have won an electric bike for a long time. So I said, he said, I want to give you, I want to give you this check for an electric bike or, or whatever you need it for during lockdown. And I, you know, I was like, no, I couldn't. And he's like, just take it. Just take it. So I took it. I took the check and I deposited it. And I'm looking at electric bikes one night. And then I started looking at Legoto Romanolo puppies. Of course. Of course. <laughs> so I just switched on over. Because, uh, you know, they cost about what a good electric bike costs, right? And so, you know, and of course it's a lockdown. So there's no rescue dogs. There's everybody's adopted. Oh my gosh, yeah. Waitlist for all the dogs. But. There was a breeder in Santa Fe who a woman changed her mind about this puppy. And I said, I want a truffle dog. I want it to be a female because they're the best work dogs. And she's like, oh, I have the dog for you. And it ends up her grandmother is from Di Cravalli Kennel in Italy. 
which was the first kennel designated for truffle dogs because this dog almost went extinct. They're Etruscan water dogs, so they they've been around since like fourth century BC in you know documented in art and things like that, Etruscan art, and they were used to retrieve waterfowl when they hunted them in the lakes around what, what is now Rome. Amazing. And then as Rome grew, the lakes got filled in, and they they started using these dogs to hunt truffles because they're you know they're they're just they're kind of short, stocky. They're little powerhouses. You know they're small dogs, but they're thick and they're muscular. And they've got the fur on it or hair like a poodle, so they don't get cut from the brambles. You know, they're good in the woods. And, you know, when I asked people, they said, well, the sense of, all dogs have a good sense of smell, right? Like they don't have a better sense of smell than other dogs. But they have been specifically bred for this. And they said they attach pretty, they bond deeply with their owner. But in Italy, they often keep them in cages, right, where they hunt. Like they're not, they don't sleep in bed with them usually and stuff like that. And, but then they would just breed them with other dogs who are also good truffle hunters. Like they were work dogs. And so they almost, about 40 years ago, went extinct as a breed. And then some people in Italy got together, kind of saved that. And then they started the Cravalli Kennel, where they were they were specifically bred for truffle hunting. And with Flora Jane, my truffle puppy, you know, when I, I've asked people, what is it with them? What I have come around to realizing is that it, it's not so much that she, because they say, oh, so they can focus more or this and that. She was a regular puppy, you know, cute and playful. and. ADD and, you know, and everything right. started nose training her immediately. One thing she does have is she loves snacks. She loves treats. She loves food. She's obsessed with it. So that is, you need that because then you can, you can treat train them. Right. And so they, they used to use pigs, but the pigs would destroy the mycelium. They eat your fingers, they you know, eat the truffles, yeah. the truffles, yeah, you have to beat them off, but you never had to train them because the truffles had the, what is it like their sex pheromone, the dressed and all. Uh, that yeah. attracted the female pigs. So dogs you have to train because they don't have a natural affinity for it, but they won't eat them. Some will eat them, but but not all of them. So I started nose training Flora Jane early on. I did an online course through the Truffle Dog Company in Seattle. Basically, I followed what they said and and I got truffle oil, which doesn't actually have real truffles in it, most of it, but I got a white truffle oil from Oregon that does. Mm. And I thought, okay, timing's good because the truffle orchards are going to start coming in here. You know, they started going in about 10, 12 years ago. What I didn't know, but I've learned about since, is that we have wild truffles here in Marin. Yes. You know, William Harkness wrote about his favorite, his favorite sort of the father of California mycology. His favorite place to look for the Oregon white truffle was under the oak trees in Mill Valley, which is like five, 10 minutes away from here where Flora Jane and I take our hikes. And then, who was it? Jim Trapp discovered the Oregon white truffles on the north side of Mount Tam, you know, so they're here, but <laughs> finding them, you know, is, is you finding your patch is like anything. It takes time. So I was training for a Jane and, you know, there's smoke filled skies and this and that. And, and it's great because it wears them out. Nose training can wear out your dog and it's good for their brain. So if we're stuck inside because of the smoke, I would, I would hide these Q-tips that I had infused with white truffle oil around the house and she'd find them. And I also did it with porcini and chanterelle, pieces of those. She'd find those. So she's nose training for all of these. I haven't taught her the words yet, and, I'm, and that's that's next step. And she was great. She loved it. My cats loved it. You know, they, they get treats too. You know, that was sort of our lockdown activity. And then when mushroom season started, you know, I took – and we also would, would go to the woods a lot to get a baseline because I wanted her to be very comfortable in the forest and not distracted. And what I learned about her, and I think probably is true for oligotos, is they're just, they're forest dogs. They're really good in the forest. 
So she can, she will belly crawl under brambles. She will run along logs. She will, she can climb up rock cliffs that are like 85, 90, you know, 85 degree rock cliffs. So I was just like, oh, she's a forest beast. And, you know, for, for a puppy, like really walking on a leash, she would pull like a sled dog, you know, she's better now and I trained her, but you know, she's, she's very willful and, you know, big personality. But when we're in the woods together, it's just wonderful. You know, she's just fully engaged, curious. And, you know, first she stuck with me and now she'll zigzag a bit, you know, come back. But she always, she always knows where I am. I always know where she is. We started learning to communicate. And I was also learning my trees. You know, I'm like, okay, I need to know, I want a baseline. I want to see, because if it's too acidic, anything like an azalea rhododendron, a truffle's mm. going to be there. So I'm really kind of looking for the sword ferns and the, you know, the things that, that are better truffle habitat. You know, because you can go and you can test the soil for the pH for the right one for truffle, or you can learn your plants, um, which I think in the long term is going to be a, a better way to do it. So you're identifying habitat trying to see that pH of the soil based on, is this an acidic loving kind of low shrub or bush, or is this a basic loving one? And then you said oak, are there any other trees you're trying to clue into too to identify? And they, and, and troubles don't like ancient trees. So, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, there are a lot on uh, second growth timberland or on mm. Christmas tree farms because, you know, the mycelium, the trees and the mycelium are echomycorrhizal. Uh, in the case of truffles, you know, they, they have this symbiotic relationship and they need that when they're growing, right? So around a 30 to 50 year old tree is really what you want. Because once they're really old and established, they're, they don't need that relationship as much. So you're looking for the age and the size of the tree. You're looking for the habitat and the composition of the soil. And then as sort of the, my, my, my truffle guru is, Kevin sadly is my mushroom guru, but my truffle guru is John Getz and he's up in Oregon. And he is amazing. Like he is just, he's a nice, nice guy. And, you know, so I'll ask his opinion on stuff. And he's like, you know, Maria, look for this, this and this. And he said, but if there's anything I've learned about mushrooms, she'd never know. <laughs> I'm sure there are plenty of walks in the woods where you do not come back with truffles. Oh, yeah. And there, you might, your dog might show up with something and you're like, where did that come from? Last year, I found a whole, like a ton of porcini under oak trees. You know, and it never occurred to me to look under oak trees for porcini. And I think they were only there because nobody else had looked under oak trees for porcini. I've heard this about people finding porcini or some kind of bolitaceae family mushrooms under oak trees. Like in Sonoma County and Marin County, there are people that swear that porcini do ectomycorrhizally associate with oak. I, I've never seen it. And I've asked this to different foragers, mycologists, and they're like, no, there must be some kind of fir tree nearby or pine tree. I'm like, no, they're, but yeah, that's really interesting. But I found butter bolites under oak last year, but I've never found the, the elusive oak associated porcini that so many foragers here in Marin and Sonoma County know about. It was my first time, totally my first time, took me by surprise. And I was with two really seasoned foragers and we all just were blown away. We were just totally blown away. But Flora Jane was with us. And so I thought, you know, porcini, right? The smell. And so I pull her over to Porcini and she kind of looks at it and goes back to digging her badger hole, you know, or whatever it was she was doing. And she did the same thing with Chantrell. My first Chantrell with her, I was like, Chantrell. And she stepped on it and, you know, <laughs> no interest. So I took pieces of it and I hid it. And then she went and found it, but she didn't get it. And so I thought, oh no, I thought, what if 
we're, there's truffles here and she's just not getting it. And I will love that little dog. I was like, I will love her even if she never finds a truffle. Um, you know, she's my baby, but what if I have a truffle dog that won't find truffles? Could be, could happen. So even though her grandmother was like a renowned truffle hunter in Italy, or so I was told, right? You, you so, will bury that disappointment and just love the dog. <laughs> well, I'll just have a regular dog who, you know, and maybe I can put my cat Spike on a leash and take him out truffle hunting. You know, that'll be that. Because <laughs> he does pretty well with nose training in the house. <laughs> he does well. But um, so I thought, okay, we got it. We got to see if this is real. So like February or so, we drove up to Washington and Alana McGee is a co-founder of the truffle dog company up there. And I was like, can you do a lesson with us? And so we met her outside at a live truffle site uh, north of Seattle. And she said, you know, and this was before that big storm hit, you know, and she said, it's it's not very good conditions. It's cold. You know, this is her first time doing it. She's only smelled oil. She's like, keep your expectations really low. She said, I did bury some truffles and I set some flags there. Um, she said, because I, she said, because I also needed to learn, you know, I also needed to learn because they look like soil. They look like rocks. You know, I'm like, I've never seen a truffle like you know, in Italy I, a little bit, but I don't even know if I was paying that much attention. So I wanted to be trained as well for this. So we go out into the forest and Laura Jane starts running around, digging up truffles. The ones she buried, wild truffles. She just started finding truffles. Oh, she's a truffle hound. So she's a truffle hound. It's like she was fully focused and it was just like her DNA just kicked in and she did it. You know, so some of it was the training, but I, some of it was just, she just had it. So, you know, and Alana, we're training both of us, you know, she's like, get in there with her. It's a team sport. And, you know, and I'm looking for it. And she said, what you do is, because it can be very hard to see in the dirt. And she said, um, you have your, your like set box with, with a piece of truffle in it. And you just go, show me, show me. And whenever she touches it with her nose, you give her a treat. So you want her to be able to show you where the truffle went. And, and I think because they'll dig and sometimes it'll spray out behind them, but you really want to kind of get to it before they get to it because you don't want it scratched yeah. and, or nicked. And there's, there's kind of a pl- between the soil levels where they tend to grow. And so, so she started finding them and we went several more times in Washington and then Oregon on our way home. And, and we didn't go out with John, but he told me where to go in, in Oregon. Kind of, he gave me one of his old patches that was discovered by everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go. So it was just the two of us. And it was so, I mean, it's so funny. Before I left, somebody, you know, where Polly Jane goes to play with other dogs, he's like, truffles. He goes, some guy in the park was like, that's so bougie. And, you know, Flora Jane and I were checking in the hotel and I was covered in mud. And my hands were totally muddy. <laughs> I kept her in the car. And the clerk is just looking at me like, what? You know, I've clearly been like crawling through the woods. And I thought, I'm like, Truffle eating truffles might be kind of bougie, but finding them is very primal. I was going to say that guy at the hotel was not thinking bougie when he saw you. <laughs> With his hands. Well, and I always thought that it must develop such an intimate connection between you and the dog as well. You were talking about, you know, pointing out the truffle, and I know it can be difficult sometimes to learn what your dog's indication indicator kind of stance is or what they do. I've heard some dogs raise a paw. You know, and obviously you're training that. So she points very directly. But yeah, it must just get you on this whole other level of a symbiosis, basically, with your dog as you're out in the wild looking for truffles. Yes. And, you know, I also you have to learn how scent moves. Right. And so your dog is not going in a line to the truffle. 
uh, scent. I learned, I wonder, there's this wonderful book I read, uh, Scent and the Scenting Dog. And it's like, like William Styrone or something. I, I can look it up. But the, the scent from a truffle, so I'm sure as you know, and a lot of your listeners know, is when it's ripe and its spores are ready to be spread. That's when it releases its scent, right? And in this book, what it said is that we actually have kind of the same biology on our skin as soil has when it comes to bacteria. We have the same kind of bacterial uh, composition as soil. And, and our, interestingly, our blood has a similar minerals and saline content as the ocean. So, you know, we are kind of these little fractals, but, but we so are as, of the earth, yeah. we, we really are. And, and so, but, you know, as our body releases its scent, kind of the soil. And so that when the truffles releasing its scent, it comes up and it rafts up and it moves. So it doesn't, it doesn't stay still right there, right? It moves like almost like a river current. So through trees, hits eddies and obstacles, it'll fork. So when Flora Jane's following a scent, she's moving back and forth. She's circling a tree. So it's, it, it's really learning to give her space. You know, what's, what, how much space do I give her with this? You know, because yeah. if I'm right on her, I'm going to be running around twice as much as I need to. And then knowing when is she honing in on it? And then when is she on something? And here she loves digging up uh, rodent holes. So I'm, I'm definitely learning the difference between a rodent hole and we're on something. But, you know, there, yes. So you have to learn to work with your dog. You're working with scent. And you're triangulating with the forest, right? So it is exquisite. It is literally addictive. And soil itself, gardeners will tell you, they're doing studies that soil is addictive. Like clean soil is addictive. So imagine that when you're like, like, and when you connect with your dog, it's like dancing a really wonderful tango. You know, it's like you're moving together in this way that's really sublime. You're in this incredibly beautiful forest. And then you have a truffle. And then you have pockets filled with truffles like it's the best thing in the world <laughs> and you would know because i mean you are a tango dancer so i'm sure you feel that that energy yeah, flowing yeah. like that all of a sudden you're like you have this kind of like breath to breath heart to heart you know you're moving symbiotically with with this creature and it's really this incredibly entry into this ecosystem and you have to have an animal to do it and which makes it pretty remarkable, you know, because when we're hunting porcini and chanterelles, we're using our eyes. And so we don't have to have that. But to have an animal you're working with, you know, do that, it, it really is a, a pretty, it's pretty spectacular. And and also when I'm just doing like tug of wars with her or just taking walks, I'm always mindful that we're communicating, we're creating, we're strengthening our communication. Because this was really our first winter. She was a puppy. I didn't really know what I was doing. So I'm just really excited this idea of evolving with my dog, along with my dog. And we talked earlier about that connection we're all seeking to be more in tune with natural systems and being able to sense what's going on. And that, and this just sounds like it's taking that to an even deeper level. And you're also bringing up something that I've heard a lot of people talk about. And I believe you've done some, re- I mean, it sounds like you've researched almost everything when it comes to mushrooms and truffles, but you know, people have been doing this research on the co-evolution of truffles with many mammals, but humans, it seems like there's this unique co-evolution where I've heard, you know, one researcher even posit that the, the co-evolution for humans has meant that we want to train other animals. It's like part of the reason why we train other animals so we can find these, like the, the co-evolution with truffles in humans is just mind-blowing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think cannabis is probably the only other plant, you know, or the only other, so not plant. I mean, troubles are not a plant, but 
organism that has got yeah. humans to cultivate it and move it around as much as, you know, oh yeah, there is, I, I can't remember the exact number, but there's thousands of acres of truffle orchards being planted all over the world now. They're on every continent except Antarctica, right? They're everywhere. They're, you know, they're planting them. They're, you know, Eastern Europe after the fall of the Soviet Union, kind of all these areas started rewilding themselves. And so they're seeing them as valuable wild truffle areas, but also, you know, they, they're seeing with climate change, what's going to happen is the truffles aren't going to die out, but they're going to move from Spain and Italy and Southern France up North in Europe. And so, so they're, you know, fighting to save them in these areas, like don't cut down trees and everything they can to not lose them because they have such a deep and rich truffle culture. Um, not right. in Spain so much. They don't really eat them in Spain, but in Italy and France, but they're moving and they're seen not only as sources of income, like there's, there's desert truffles uh, that the Bedouins, you know, in the Negev desert have been for as long as recorded history have been hunting them. And now some scientists there are trying to create places where they can grow them and create rural tourism opportunities because people want to learn, people want to do this. And so it, it's really a lot of these rural areas now that if you have truffles, if you have a truffle orchard, you know, you not only have something very high value to sell, you also have a tourism opportunity, but you also are planting trees with mycelium on them. Like what could be better for planet earth you know, <laughs> than an oak tree that's already have, has, you know, truffle inoculation on its roots. Like it's just, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's a particularly potent example because we are driven by that smell. You know, the olfactory is, I think it's probably the most powerful scent. It can conjure memories and everything like that. And you were talking about sniffing that first truffle and how immediately after you felt sad when you had to give it up. Like, that's no mistake. Like, they've developed this powerful symbiosis with us to make us want to cultivate them and spread them. And yeah, and there's some really interesting work now coming out about tuber yeah, Lyonii, which is the pecan truffle. And yeah, we're, we're entering even more so, we're entering more and more of a truffle world, it sounds like. We're entering a truffle renaissance is what we're entering. Yes. You know, is they, there are, um, you know, that are the pecan orchards now in the South, they're like, they have truffles. And at first they were considered a pest and now they're, they're like uh, local chefs. Of course you want to use pecan truffles, right? I mean, what and and that's the other thing. So that's what the selling point of all these truffle orchards. One of them is truffles lose their their ethereal. Like once they're out of the ground, they maybe have a week, ten days. So if they're right. falling over from Europe, you don't know how old they are. But if you're in you're growing them in Napa, Sonoma, and sending them to San Francisco, or you have a pecan orchard in Georgia that's sending them into Atlanta, they're fresh. They they have they have that fully robust, you know whatever that secret is they have going on, you know? Um, and I also love seeing in Oregon and Washington because they're, they're such wild food places, or not wild food, but local food places and wild food. But they, and I think the scientist Charles Lefebvre, I don't know if you've spoken to him, but he is Mr. Truffle and he started the Truffle Oregon, or the Truffle Oregon Truffle Festival. But they're now using them because you have a lot of subprime pieces, right? And the chefs only want like the whole truffle and you shave it on something. But like Salt and Straw is making black truffle, Oregon black truffle ice cream. You know, they're making liqueurs infused with black truffles. There's there's all these new ways. I had a Bianchetto, Bianchetto, the white truffle from Italy. They're now growing these in North Carolina. They're they're expecting bumper crops of these in North Carolina. So they're they're not as valued as the Alba white truffle, but they're still fabulous. So this is the other thing with the truffle is everybody, when you say truffle, they're like, $3,000 a pound, you know, it was auctioned off for $300,000. 
that's one truffle. That's one type of truffle. And, and it's been right. branded really, really well. There's hundreds of kinds of delicious truffles and they're not going to cost as much. And, and they're going to be actually pretty widely available. And you can take them and infuse cream with them and then make your own butter out of it, you know, and it's going to be delicious and make like, I get, there's this cheese with the, the bianchetto in it from Italy that doesn't have any, I hate truffle oil and stuff because it's not real truffles and you can taste it. But um, bianchetto truffles inside this hard cheese I had once, like it's, a, it's amazing. And when I, Sounds I amazing. yeah, somebody gave me one or I came across, I had one and I shaved it over, um, I made toast with some bone marrow and shaved it over that. I mean, it was fabulous. People say this doesn't have value. I'm like, that's ridiculous. That's utterly ridiculous. Well, I was going to ask you about any favorite go-to recipes. I mean, it sounds like we can use them in pretty much anything, infuse truffle in anything, put it on anything, even ice cream, uh, and it's going to make it better. But is there any go-to kind of staple if someone's got their fresh truffle, something that you think is a no-miss, just amazing dish to use it with? Okay, so my first eating of a truffle was on a pizza with sheep milk cheese, right? That was it. That was just it. It was just, it was just a super simple shape, you know, sheep milk cheese, super hot, shaved Paragord truffle over it. And so that is still one of my absolute favorite go-tos is a truffle pizza. It's just make a simple pecorino cheese pizza. And what I'll do is I will um, infuse a pecorino first. So to save my truffles and you can just put your truffle in with a block of cheese, but I was like, Oh, I need, I was going to freeze it. So what I did is I shaved a truffle in with, and I shaved the cheese and I mixed them all together. I gave them about a day or two in the refrigerator and then I froze it. And then you can pull that out and use it. Right. And so you can pull that out and make that, but then you really want to shave a truffle over it, a fresh truffle over that. And it's just so delicious. And you can share that with so many people or, and just the pasta too. It's like make some homemade pasta. And just a little butter and shaved truffle over that. Because, you know, you just really, I was also getting Stemple Creek, what are they, flat steaks or something like that? Yeah, flat steaks from Stemple Creek Ranch. It's so good. It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) So good with truffle over it. And the other one is, yeah, our wild salmon with truffle over it, you know? Of course. Yeah, I, on part of my, our truffle tour, I visited a, commercial fisherman I know up on Lumi Island who has a Lagoda who hunts truffles. And we just, it was so funny because, you know, we, we live pretty modest lives, but we ate wild salmon with truffle over it. And then we had the Oregon white truffle I put in with the eggs overnight. So it infuses eggs through the shell. So we had scrambled eggs with the white truffles over it. Um, and then we had the pizza with our fresh truffles. <laughs> <laughs> just like we're like we're living like millionaires here does it get any better seriously that's the ultimate wealth is forget money you know give me give me truffles and yeah you're laying it out perfectly how we're entering this truffle renaissance and i mean and all these varieties we're talking about are the tuber variety which is kind of the most common edible type of truffle but man there's so many different truffles out there it's this insane example of convergent evolution where so many different fungi just tested out, hey, instead of forming this umbrella fruit body and releasing our spores, what if my mutation was I try to encase all my spores in a ball? And so that's happened hundreds of times, which has given rise to all this amazing variety of truffles that that we're discovering. And as you're laying it out, making everybody hungry, I'm sure everyone now is going to want to go and search for truffles. Do you have any advice for people who want to start working with uh, a truffle dog or a truffle puppy? 
Yes. So I would say, you know, a lot of it is kind of what I did. I mean, I do the Truffle Dog Company's online course or, you know, if some people in the area offer truffle training, some people will offer truffle dog training courses here and there, but really get out in the woods, you know, start learning your fungi, start learning your trees, you know, I mean, that's really like, you've got to love that, you know, you got to love being out there. And up in the Pacific Northwest, they don't have the, the level of ticks that we have. They don't have the poison oak that we have. California woods, you know, it can get, you know, we have those huge wood rats, right? And I haven't seen one yet, but sometimes I'll look up and Flora Jane and I are surrounded by these giant wood rat nests, <laughs> you know, or badger holes. or. You know. I know. I hear the stories of people in the Pacific Northwest just not having poison oak and as many ticks is mind blowing to me. Uh, you know, it makes me realize how brutal sometimes it can be in California. Oh yeah, they have these really long leashes and their dogs run through the woods with these long leashes and they can grab the long leash. And I thought, oh, I'll get one. And then I'm watching Fort Jane drag it through poison oak all over the place. And I'm like, I'm not grabbing that leash. Right. <laughs> Absolutely not. But I'll tell you one thing about the variety of truffles. I mean, the United States has over 240 varieties of wild truffles that we know about. And a lot of them are considered insipid or not very delicious, but they're not poisonous because they need to be consumed, right? And yeah. moved around. So so there's the diversity of truffles is the other exciting part. And so we, when we've been, uh, we've done surveying Mount Tam, I have found the rhizopogens that are called pogies. And and I have a neighbor from, um, originally from China and she was smelling it. She's like, it smells great. And then, you know, my Pacific Northwest truffle people are like, no, you don't eat those. And the, the, the woman who, who's, you know, roots are in China, she goes, is it just that Americans don't eat those? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I think so. Because we have a very limited palate here in the sure. United States. For seafood, for fungi, just much more limited. And so I looked it up and sure enough, they're considered a delicacy in Japan and they make chawanmushi. And so I just want to make sure it's the same type of rhizopogen. But I also feel like the more we familiarize ourselves with truffles, the more we can evolve what and how we consume them, right? And my hope is that we start saying these forests are more valuable, not logged, you know, that because up in the Pacific Northwest and in Northern California, they not only clear cut, they still do this. They then take helicopters and they dump pesticides and herbicides, uh, metric tons of them onto the areas in which they have clear cut. So that keeps down the underbrush, right? But it kills all of those creatures that have been living in the forest. It kills the mycelium. It kills the soil. It kills everything. And then it runs into people's water and it kills the fish and it gives people cancer. And that's still happening. That is still happening. It's insane. Like it, its roots are back in Agent Orange. It's, it's literal insanity. You know, the more we're discovering about how forests actually work, the complex forest ecosystems, you know, much less adding in this like amazing wild bounty, just understanding how vital and rich these forest ecosystems are. The fact that we would do anything to damage them, much less try to eradicate whole elements of it is the height of hubris and and stupidity. And it's, yeah, it's shocking. It's terrifying. And, you know, and I know John Getz has been fighting this for a long time because he's in an area of Oregon, Florence, Oregon, that they've had horrible problems with. There was basically the, the chemicals going into their water, their water systems. but you know, what he has said for a long time, because he also hunts Marisaki, which you get a lot, you know, they're they're very high dollar, especially when you export them to Japan, um, and truffles, and a lot of the, the mushroom hunters, a lot of the professional mushroom hunters and mycologists have been saying this for a long time, the forests are worth more alive than dead, you know, and how do we do that? And so 
yeah, so I think it'd be great, you know, timber companies maybe buy back that land and people buy a license to go hunt truffles on there with their dogs, you know, and that we that we create preserves in these areas that that because if we're doing it for a hobby also, you know, I'm not I don't ever want to try to rely on hunting wild truffles for a living. It's <laughs> not any mushroom for a living. <laughs> but but I feel like for a hobby, you know, it's fantastic. You're outside in the woods, you've got your dog with you, you know, because as everybody who has a dog knows, your life changes when you have a dog. You're like, you got to spend your weekends with your dog. Like that's, <laughs> that's how it is. So you have this, you know, activity with the dog and even some of these truffle orchards that some of them might want to set up a program where people can come and train their dogs on it. And that's an added revenue stream for them. Um, and that's another kind of fun activity. And, and it might be that you try it with your dog and it's, fine, you don't love it, or maybe you love it and you really want to do this and you want to go train up north, you know, with the with with those guys in the big woods, you know, and and but I do think I think it's coming. I think it's growing. And I also very much believe in I'm hoping it brings on this sort of democratization of pleasure, right? Is truffles should not just be for wealthy people. They just I just feel like and and yeah, maybe we don't go to a nice restaurant and pay an extra fifty dollars to have them shaved over something. But maybe we can go to a farmer's market and pay $15 for a truffle, you know, and make a pizza and share it with four people, you know, and you still get this deep pleasure uh, that, that really, I think, is primal, really sort of, if you think about it, like the truffle is a mover, is the energy moving the forest ecosystem. It's really this sort of linchpin of desire. If we all believe we have the right to pleasure which I do. I believe everyone has the right to pleasure. And I believe the easiest way to access that is through food, right? You know, I know when I was trying to trying to get the funding to buy my houseboat, I was, I was staying on a friend's little boat and, you know, there's no bathroom. I had to run up and use that. And I'd say, you know, and it was, it was pretty, pretty primitive living, but I had a box of figs I'd gotten at the farmer's market and I was sitting on the back deck of the boat and I was eating these fresh figs and it was looking at the bay. And I just thought, I'm the luckiest person in the world. You know, and that's what I think food can do for us. And that's, you know, so I really, I do, I believe like, and, and our farmer's market here in Marin, they, somebody sold them some Oregon white truffles and Oregon black truffles, and they had a really hard time selling them because they said, oh, the chefs would smell them and go, that's not a truffle. And I said, well, how much were you selling them for? And they said, well, the Oregon whites are like, just like, they ended up being like 10 bucks each and they weren't huge, but you know, and the Oregon blacks were probably 25 bucks each. And those are probably larger. But I'm like, that's doable. That is doable every once in a while to do that. And then, like I said, infuse your cheese with it, infuse your eggs with it, you know, and then shave it on top. And it's like everybody deserves pleasure. I mean, this is a beautiful, it's an almost utopian world that you're laying out, but not really. Like it's eminently attainable. And you've just laid out some really powerful concepts. I like that idea about the democratization of pleasure. And when you're describing that scene on the boat, kind of eating figs, you're getting at the heart of this thing that I think so many people, when they come to mushrooms, they come to wild food, I can't tell if it's because they're already on this wavelength or that helps get them get them on this wavelength, that we start seeing different value systems and understanding the economic value system that we've installed right now that's kind of running things is super limited, not really the answer. And I think it leads to a lot of anxiety and frustration for people if they think, oh, I haven't succeeded in this economic value system. When really, like you're saying, that doesn't that that's not really the wealth, you know, that's not really the point of the human experience. And I can just tell, and like I said, I don't know if it's 
because you got intimately connected with wild food that you stumbled onto that, or if you were already on that wavelength and it caused you to dive into these things. But either way, I think this part of foraging, the foraging community gives me so much hope that we can reorient and maybe find an alternative value system that feels more human, that feels more satisfying. And that's always a kind of a big question I like to throw at people is, you know, do you see that too? And I, and I feel that very much from what you're talking about. Well, yeah, and that's what, and that is, you know, when I talk about we need new systems, that's the new system we need. You know, we need the new system that, first of all, we all acknowledge it is insanity to be living in systems that are suicidal, which ours are right now. And that we have been convinced they're necessary for our survival, right? So we've been convinced these suicidal systems are 100% necessary for our survival. That's, that is insanity. But we've all, myself included, we've, we all live in that system. And then to think only if you win capitalism do you deserve good food. That is not how the earth was set up. That is not it. And, and that is not true. You know, yeah. and that's a great thing about foraging and gardening. Because a fig coming off your tree is going to be the best fig you ever have, right? <laughs> that porcini you find is, is going to be just the best porcini you've ever had. So, you, you know, it's, it really, it is. It's something. And, and maybe what the pandemic, COVID lockdown made us see is like, we're choosing between money and time all the time, right? Yes. And maybe we reevaluate that. And we look at like, because, and even, you know, this is something Andy Warhol said you know, about Americans. He's like, everybody can buy a Coke and a rich person's Coke tastes the same as a poor person's Coke. And so food is our great, you know, democratization. And, and so if we, if we look to nature for the answers to change these cycles and we do it through pleasure, you know, not through guilt, not through shame, not through, you know, but we do it through pleasure. What a wonderful way to change the world. I love that idea. And it, it, again, it's one of the reasons that this gives me so much hope, just understanding mushrooms on a deeper level, understanding wild food on a deeper level for me translates to hope to make these kind of changes. Cause I spent a lot of my life raging against the machine, if you will. And at a certain point you realize that you just need to discover some other avenue that's going to lead you away from that. Yeah. If you're on this suicidal track that it seems like modernity's on. And I love the way you said that, where we feel like the human the human created systems are the only thing keeping us alive or a key to our survival, no matter how ridiculous they sound. That's like the wrong track to be on. We have to find another avenue and forging wild food mushrooms feel like that for me. And I think for a lot of people, well, I know that after having this conversation, Maria, a lot of people are going to want to hear more about you, more about what you have to say, more about your work, because as Anyone can tell from listening to this, you're well-researched in so many different areas, well-spoken, very well-written. Where is the best place for people to find your written work, find more of your articles, more of the work you're putting out there? Oh, so my written work is, I have, my website is mariafin.com. So just, and that has my articles and essays and books and everything. Um, and then I also have florandfungiadventures.com. Yes. And tell us, of course, about the classes and the foraging classes and what seasons and all that. So seaweed camp is this Saturday. And then I think late June, maybe like 29th of June, 27th is on a Sunday. So this Saturday, then a Sunday in June, Alaska is sold out. But I'm doing a pop-up dinner that I'm collaborating with Trey Belchowski. And we're doing it in the Redwoods on Mirror um kind of near Mirror Woods on Mount Tam, but it's a circumambulation and salmon dinner. So we're going to be doing um, kind of these meditative stations as we go through, uh, looking at our relationship with both redwoods and salmon and finding our interconnectedness with it. 
the beat poets, uh, Allen Ginsberg and Gary Snyder, and there's one other, they used to do an 18 mile walk called the Circumambulation of Mount Tam. And they would stop and they would do this heart mantra at you know, different stations. And it was really about respecting you know, our natural systems, but also how we're one with everything, right? Um, and so this is going to be a 1.8 mile walk in that sounds manageable right in through the redwoods and then there's going to be um you know we're gonna we're gonna go through sort of our four stations of sort of the redwood salmon evolution and our own relationship with them and then we're gonna have a salmon dinner and then we're gonna dance and we're gonna have a silent disco so (laughs) so it's really uh so it's kind of covering all our forms of you know worship in a way you know nature food all at the interconnectedness and dancing doesn't get more human than that. All right, then we dance it out. And so, you know, and so this is the thing when I talk about democratization of pleasure is that, you know, I pay people to do all this stuff and I'm making a living and so I have ticket prices, but I also want people to know they can volunteer or they can reach out to me if they can't afford it. And, and I will find a way to work with them because, you know, this is, it is something where I need to make a living, but I don't want this to be cost, pro- you know, to, to shut out people who can't, who can't do this because, you know, people like, Kevin, Kevin Sadlier, he started the Marin Mycological Society. So he, they take people out, super affordable. It's like 40 bucks a year to belong to that. You, know, you can go on forays and look at it through there. And the events I do cost more because of the cooking classes and my expenses and my time. But if people want to, um, if they want to help me out and they want to volunteer during them, you know, that's another way they can, they can go and they can access. Well, and all my listeners in Marin, I mean, anywhere in the Bay Area, really, but that is your call to action. I have a lot of people asking me, how do I get started? Where, you know, how can I start foraging mushrooms? And the advice I'm like a broken record I always give is find that local mycological society. Like you just said, Marin has a fantastic one, Marin Mycological Society, really centered on foraging. They do great talks though, and a lot of other things. Uh, And then there are experts like yourself who are hosting events where you can learn kind of to take it to that next level. We'll take you out. And because a foray is like, you go out and you go looking for stuff. But I did porcini camp because I felt like how I learned my culinary mushrooms was I wanted to learn one at a time and learn it well. Yes. You know, because a foray, if you put, everybody puts a hundred different mushrooms on a table and they go, oh, that's a porcini and that's a matasaki and that's an amanita and will kill you. You know, that's, you know, you're like, I'm like, that's not, I want to know this is a porcini and be 120% sure. Right. And then the next camp was chanterelles. Um, and if I find a safe and good morale spot, I might do a pop-up morale one as well, but that's a little tricky kind of moving people through woods that have been on fire because it can be unsafe. But if I find a safe one, I'll do that at the pop-up. So that said, I have a newsletter on Flora and Fungi Adventures. Some of them will be pop-ups like, oh, there's morels, I'll have to do it quickly. Some of them will be pretty far in advance. Like, you know, the Alaska Wild Food Camp sold out pretty quickly. So we'll probably plan another, maybe one or two for next year. Clearly on any of these events, not only you're learning, but you're having lively, amazing conversations with people and talking about the future of the world and the direction. So I think it's a, an amazing just atmosphere to be a part of. I really encourage people check out your website, you know, social media. We'll have all the links in the show notes to that. But I really encourage people, obviously, if you're not in Marin, read the writing, be a part of it. But if you're in Marin, really encourage people to take part in the classes. You, you could be San Francisco, Sonoma. You could be all over the place. I think we have people even coming from Sacramento for one. So yeah, so definitely. We're not going to geographically limit it then. Just go to Maria's website. Learn more, fly out, be part of the camp. Uh, so yeah, that that sounds amazing. Well, I'll wrap things up with some questions I like to ask all of my guests. And for someone like yourself, who's had varied life experiences and a lot of insights, 
you know, we could ask many, many more questions, but I'll stick with my standard three. And the first one is a mushroom that you love and why. And that could be a mushroom you love to look at, eat, doesn't have to be a favorite, just a mushroom you love and why that maybe we haven't talked about yet. There's a lot of them. You know, they're so cute. Uh, <laughs> so there's just so many of them that are so cute. I mean, that's what, you know, when you're out hunting mushrooms and you're looking for this, but you're like, oh, they're so pretty. They're so cute. Um, what would I say? What would I say? My favorite culinary one that's not a truffle is the black trumpet. The black trumpet. The elusive black trumpet. Uh, it's so hard to see. So when you find them, it's you just, you feel like a rock star. Yes. And they taste like earth to me. You know, they taste just like soil, like really delicious soil. So, Which now we know it's addictive. So yes, there you yeah. go. So it's like, I'm making, yeah, like so I flatbreads and I just a whole, like, I love those. So yeah, I'll, I'll go with the black trumpet for now. Craterellus cornucopioides, I believe. Yeah, one of my favorites. And I was lucky enough to go out hunting with someone who was much better at finding them than me. And that's my usual advice for people is get someone who's actually really good at finding them and has some strategy because uh, then you'll get a lot better results. I mentioned little kids because they're closer to the ground. <laughs> they can see them. <laughs> Foraging with little kids is usually a good idea on so many levels, not only because they can see it, but you'll never get, you'll never be able to match the excitement of, like you said, an 11 year old finding a bunch of porcini in the forest. It'll just raise the enthusiasm level about a thousand times. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, and then a much broader general question what has a relationship with fungi given to you? And this can be, you know, new perspectives, things that fungi and mushrooms have taught you. What is that relationship you've developed, you know, through wild edible mushrooms, now understanding the world of truffles? What has that relationship given to you? I feel like it has expanded my capacity for nonlinear thinking and really kind of understanding a little bit more this living system that we're a part of. You know, the fact that they're they're underground and they're communicating between trees and they're passing along nutrients. And uh, like I just I think for me, it's a way of I would almost call it like. Appreciating what I don't know and what I can't see. Honoring the mystery. Yeah. Honoring the mystery. Yes. Because they are mysterious little creatures. They're just you know, it's like when you try to grow those, and I had two chanterelles growing in a planter box because every time I clean my chanterelles, I would put it in these in my planter boxes. I just put the scrapings in, and I had a barrel out front. And you know, you cannot cultivate chanterelles, and I had chanterelles growing, so I took some pictures of it and then I ate them. And then I was at the Napa Truffle Festival. And I was talking to Dr. Paul Thomas, and he's like, "That's impossible. You can't cultivate chanterelles." <laughs> yeah, I was going to say you can't. You can't, Maria. Well, what magic was this? I, I just did it. It was only one time, and you know, and I showed him the pictures, and he's like, "I need to see the gills." And I'm like, "I ate them. Like I'm telling you, they were chanterelles." <laughs> and so, you know, but then you can go to the perfect. You saw the chanterelles here, the same spot last year, same conditions, and they're nowhere to be found. And you know, so yeah, they are the great mystery. Well, I stole that line from my wife, but it's a line I love that I think applies to fungi so many times is learning to honor the mystery and being okay with, I don't have to understand it, but I am keying in my observations and able to perceive what's going on, even if I don't know why. And I love that idea of, yeah, expanding our nonlinear thinking. I think trying to think like fungi does work out some muscles in our brain that don't really get worked right. out. Think, very of like a for think of it as a forest as an organism. 
you know, that's this past year. That's been my practice. Thinking of it as an organism, not a tree and a plant. And then, you know, then how do we expand that to see ourselves as part of the organism? Exactly. Then it's like, where does that end? Where is the boundary between these organisms? Or is the earth just one giant organism? And I think it, I think it is. It is, right? And then another big, broad question, but, you know, as the Western world especially develops our relationship with mushrooms and fungi, what's kind of your aspiration for how that will impart positive change or what kind of, you know, really best case scenario, bright future do you see in the coming decades as we understand these organisms more and partner with them more in kind of all aspects of life? Well, I think what we're discovering is that fungi can do anything. I mean, they're, they're capturing carbon. People are making leather out of them. They're making packing materials out of them. They're making building materials out of them. I mean, we can feed fungi our food waste and grow housing. You know, we can grow boats with our food. You know, it's like they are, and it's such an exciting time. And I'm, I'm so grateful to our pioneers, like the Paul Stamets of this world, you know, who really just uh, saw this and started shouting, like, look at this, you know, everything, our health and our food and our health of the planet like we and i more and more people like i make their kids are obsessed with it i think they saw the film fantastic fungi or you know something like that and they don't even like to eat them but right. you know i go to a friend's house and their kids wearing a mushroom mask and mushroom socks and you know and i just think right on that is so great you know because they i think they can save us like I said, I don't know if it's people who already have that aspiration or that kind of understanding of greater inter interconnectivity that's naturally drawn to mycology, or I'm starting to think mycology, foraging, interacting with fungi is this thing that reprograms us to have more of that appreciation and more of that feeling. So I, I don't think it's a big stretch to say that by people interacting with fungi, it changes their perceptions, their mental models, their narratives, and that inevitably changes the world. No, I, th I totally agree. And I think, I think they're coming for us. <laughs> <laughs> they're here to help. They're coming for us they and they're are. here to help. They're like, they're like, they're coming for us. Like the truffle will find you. You know, that's what I think. Most people, they get obsessed with the truffle. It's like the truffle found them and they're coming. Like truffles are, they're being planted everywhere. And I think we need their help more than ever. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it's time. You know, it really is time. And so thank you so much for everything you're doing to bring this out to people and to spread the awareness and the magic and the, the possibility. Well, the mushrooms came to me and had all these great changes that we've been talking about kind of imparted to my consciousness. And I'm not even talking about ingesting psychedelics, you know, that just understanding it imparts these changes to your consciousness. Uh, but yes, Maria, thank you so much for coming on and talking about some of these really big ideas you've offered us loads of beautiful insights. I'm going to re-listen to this interview and just pick up all these other kernels and probably kick myself thinking I should ask more about that, which is <laughs> inevitable. But yes, thank you so much for sharing your time with us coming on the show. Uh, it's really been a pleasure and I hope to, we get to go on a mushroom hunt soon. Yes, absolutely. I look forward to that. And thank you so much for having me.